Okay, any uh, questions or thoughts or anything from this morning? You know, I was going to use as an example of a modern-day equivalent of a tax collector. I actually have it written in here, and I chose not to. Um, for our context, it'd be the equivalent of, like, I don't know, like the local Hillary campaign manager or something. Like, no, but somebody that you'd view, and I'm, I'm, not, no, I'm not saying I would view, but I'm just sure that many of you would view that as working against the country, or like maybe a Marxist senator, or someone trying to advance gun control or something. The way you'd view them as contrary to everything that century stands, what are you doing? You're working against us. Somebody behind the shutdown. That's how they'd view, or worse, the tax collector. And so I, I decided not to throw that in, but that was, those are some of the examples I was coming up with. Okay, who in our context might that resonate with? But that was, that was what I... Anyway. Yes! Steve, oh, no, microphone, sir. Are you saying a political representative is like a tax collector? <laughs> um, since they control taxes... Yes, but more to the point, I was saying I think many of you would view it that way. I think that there'd be enough people who, if I said, uh, or someone like a Planned Parenthood lobbyist or something, that you, that would might get more of the picture of, of how a tax collector in that culture would respond. Ron wants to say something. Hold on. Give. Oh, we all agree emphatically with your views. <laughs> a tax collector might view that as an insult. Well, I'm so thankful that we're not like those people, so. Um, it's, it's all God's glory. Okay. Okay, I'm back, it's back on track here. Um, did that distinction that I was trying to draw between the general approach of legalism and what this guy is doing, did that make sense? I think it's a much more narrow point. That, that if we take Jesus at his words, this is a parable for those who are trusting in themselves that they're righteous. And this guy, gen, I mean, because I think even last week when I was talking about this, oh, he thanks God, sure, sure, whatever. You know, we, we think of that about as, as significant as the quarterback pointing his finger up to you know, heaven after they score a touchdown or something. But if we take it at his words, he's thanking God and he's trusting himself that he is righteous. He's not a legalist. He doesn't think doing the law has earned him merit. No, God's the reason he's able to be righteous. And the contrast is this other person who's like, yeah, I need somebody else's righteousness. <laughs> I need atonement. I need a sacrifice. And that's the distinction, um, is, a, is a much finer point than the broad legalist, moralist guy. Um, I thought that was really much more something we may struggle with, I might struggle with. I know that if I'm having a good week, I mean, D.A. Carson talks about how we can become pagans in our approach to God. And he goes, you ever have a good week, you've been faithful, you do the stuff you're supposed to do, and when it's time to pray, you come boldly with confidence. Here I am. And then you've had a bad week, bad day, and you kind of uh, don't quite feel so confident. That's an indication. If, you, if your confidence to come before God's throne is related to your performance, watch out. Now, sure, come, if you need to come in repentance and sackcloth because you've been unfaithful, come in repentance and sackcloth. Come beating your breast. Um, it doesn't mean to make light of sin, but never, 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 and twice on Sunday 
is our standing before God based on our performance. It's on Christ and what he has done on our behalf. And that never alters or changes or varies. Um, and so that, that particular point to me was resonated and I can be guilty of that, you know, sort of like the dog hiding behind the couch if I've been unfaithful for a while, you know, kind of, I'll wait till I go do some good works before I come back and talk to God, you know. Go. I think this is something we all need to keep in check because <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but usually when something goes wrong in my life is when I come at the feet of Christ, you know, mm. and it's more that those times that we seek after him and when everything, what we call going good, we don't do that so much. So this is a, a perfect example of what you're saying in this verse. Yeah, go, go to Hebrews 4, one of my favorite passages um, about our confidence to draw near. And in Hebrews 4, we're encouraged to draw near God's throne, again, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. In addition to this perfect sacrifice, we have a faithful high priest who's interceding on our behalf. And so we read in Hebrews 4, verse 14, we'll, we'll work our way through the double negative here. Since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. And here's the double negative. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, which if you put that positively, we do have a sympathizing, an able to sympathize, sympathize high priest with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, not because you did something, not because of who he is. We have this high priest. That's why we draw near with confidence. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And, and here's the point I want to make. When do you need mercy and help more than when you've been walking in sin? If, if, if there's a time you need more mercy and grace, is it the time you're walking strong, being faithful, resisting temptation, or is it the time you totally fell on your face? Which of those, if you had to pick, which of those two times do you more desperately need grace and help? I think it's the second. So if anything, if anything, I'm to boldly approach precisely when I totally screwed up. And not boldly like, hey God, it's no big deal. I mean, Boldly approach with a broken spirit and a contrite heart, but boldly approach nonetheless. Um, it's the boldness that comes from the confidence of who's there before the throne and whose righteousness I'm clothed in. Um, and that is a really hard thing for us to kick. I, I know that my temptation, if I've been bad, if I've been unfaithful in something, is to want to first go be faithful in something and then Come before God. See, I've been a good little doggy, you know. Um, and <laughs> that is the beginning in seed form of what this is getting at. It's the beginning of self-righteousness, and it's the beginning of shifting your hope from Christ. And Jesus warns the Pharisees and his disciples, don't do that <laughs> when you pray. Any other? Oh. Could you expand a bit on... The Pharisee who takes all the credit, which you have not, did not talk about, versus the Pharisee in this parable, I take it that both would be unjustified, rightly so. 
I, I think that, and part of why I said I don't think we should import everything, I think the point of the contrast is Jesus is picking best case scenario under the wrong system, best case scenario. So certainly there were plenty of Pharisees who took the credit, who were legalists, who because of what they did, sound the gong I'm about to give to the, this poor person. And I want the best seat in the house. That's absolutely there. Jesus hates it. He lays into it when he sees it. He attacks it. We've seen him do that in Luke. But by picking a tax collector and a Pharisee, and with the introductory focus being what it is, I think we're kind of getting best case scenario. Let's imagine the best possible Pharisee. Here's a Pharisee who absolutely thinks his righteousness is in what he does, but he recognizes it's the gift of God. Let's just take this guy, best possible Pharisee, and let's take the worst person you can think of, a sellout, disloyal, unpatriotic, oppressor of his own people, a puppet of the pagan government. Let's take these two guys, and now let's see what happens. So absolutely, there are Pharisees in the Gospels who are who, who take full credit, who are full-on legalists, who full-on believe clearly that what they do is earning merit and favor with God. I think in this parable, we're getting something slightly different, sort of the best-case scenario. Let's take Phariseeism in its best possible instance. The guy's still rejected by God, and it's still an evidence of pride, because even though he recognizes the source of his gifts as from God, he's still confident in them. So, so again, if I'm confident in myself, even if I recognize that my ability, my ability to speak, my whatever, it's all a gift from God. But if I'm trusting in that and not God, that's an evidence of pride. And if I'm trusting in that and not God, and not God it will cause me to treat others with contempt. It, it will, because my value and my standing is in me and what I do, which then means I can evaluate your value and your standing by you and what you do. And, you know, if you're, you're somebody who owns an adult bookstore, well, clearly I'm better than you. Clearly. You know? Um, it's all God's doing, but I'm better than him. I mean, that's the unescapable logic that, that such a value structure is going to yield. Um, is that what going where you're going for? So absolutely, the other type, the, the, the one who takes full credit, they're in the pages here. I think we got best case scenario. Let's, let's give the Pharisee the best possible spin, and he's still condemned, is what I think is going on. Others, Naomi. Actually, Naomi, okay, I got a second mic, but I need a person to carry it, but okay. You're mobile. You've been talking a lot about, like, um, the contempt and the, what we shouldn't be doing, but can you put it in a sort of put-off, put-on scenario? I think that would be helpful in this context, even though it's probably more like, okay, we should look at these people like, oh, they're sinners, and we should reach out to them and try to help them. But can you just put that in a put-on put context? So are you talking about when we're tempted to despise the other person? With the contempt, yes. Sure, sure. Okay. So um, when you find yourself despising other people, and, and it gets tricky, right? Because we even saw last week that there's a righteous right God-honoring, crying out for justice, and we see people oppress and do wicked things, and we, God, stop it, come back here and shut it down and, you know, give them what they deserve. There, there is a place for that. Um, what's not present in that place is me. I think the second we start measuring ourselves and putting ourselves in that equation, pride 
and self-righteousness has entered in. So um, a, a couple things are pray for that person. It's really hard to pray for someone that you despise. Or if you do, your prayers will become pretty obvious that you despise them. Um, that'd be a put on. Actively start loving them. And the other is remind yourself of truth because the, the truth from 7.10, likewise, when you've done all that's required of you, all that I've commanded, you are to say to yourselves, we have only done our duty, we are unworthy slaves. We'd, we've forgotten that. And so I maybe, I'm probably not an unworthy slave, I'm an unworthy staff sergeant, lieutenant, and I'm moving up the ranks. I'm switching metaphors a little bit, but... You know, no, at the end of the day, I'm still a wretched sinner saved by the grace of God and by Christ's sacrifice. And that, that equation hasn't changed one iota, no matter how many years of faithfulness I have in ministry or to my family or whatever. So, so if you catch yourself despising other people, recognize that, okay, somehow I've either forgotten who I am, I've forgotten that I'm an unworthy slave, and I've forgotten who they are. And my pride's in the mix. And practically, rehearse truth to yourself. Read it, pray it, confess it um, to God. And maybe pray something like, Lord, clearly I think more of myself than I ought. I don't view myself as an unworthy slave. And I can see the evidence of that because of my, um, my disgust for this other person. And Lord, help me to love them. Hate, hate what they're doing, but love them. And uh, help, you know, help me to um, repent of self-centeredness and pride. It, it, pride's a tough one because there isn't a ton of put-offs and put-ons practically. You got to get it, it. Really, is a spiritual issue, but you can start acting on it. You can start. Um, you can start speaking truth. Like, let's just take whatever political position you find abhorrent. I I guessed in our culture it'd be someone who's pro-gun control or someone who's, you know, like uh, more of a Marxist leaning, but in different spots would be someone. But whatever, the person you're most opposed to, you think is going to do the most harm to our country, whoever that person is, no names. Do, Do you really think apart from God's grace that couldn't be you? No, in and of myself, I would never do that. No, I mean, I, you, you got to remind yourself that. Without, do I get to boast in any way that I'm not the most despicable person you can think of? No. Um, and, or, and check yourselves, because maybe we don't believe that. Maybe we think we're all just sort of bad, and some people are really bad, but that's their fault. I was just sort of bad. I mean, I was bad enough that I needed the Savior, but I wasn't bad, bad, bad. Sort of um, the Hitler example? What? The Hitler example? The Hitler example. We're not Hitler, right? Um, uh, exactly. And I think the point is we all have the potential, apart from the grace of God, to be Hitler. Hitler, I think, is just a normal guy who had very abnormal um, circumstances and very abnormal opportunities. I just think it's a tree fully grown that normally gets trimmed, um, even, in, even in the godless. But I don't think it's a fundamentally different tree. I just think it's, man, they, they gave that thing a lot of water and a lot of sunlight and a lot of space, and it grew big and tall, you know? Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, you see it in children, right? I mean, Paul, Paul Washer makes the point. When that kid is reaching for the thing it wants, and you say no, and it swats you, it's only cute because it's an impotent little child. And, and Paul Washer says, yeah, I think he's right, 
In that moment, if that child had the strength and the faculties and the ability of a grown adult, it would slay you where you stand and take that toy. And it might regret it a few minutes later, but that anger that you see, it's only cute because you can't do anything. Um, it's less cute when we see you know, adults who haven't really grown up doing the same thing. But um, no, in every one of us is, so it's reminding ourselves of our depravity that, that none of us, I mean, here's another way of looking at it. Does anyone here think they have better standing than that tax collector, beating his breast, crying out, God be merciful to me, the sinner? No. The, the whole point is that we're all on the same standing at the foot of the cross, that none is righteous, no, not one. No one does good, not even one. No one seeks for God. And this is the statement of God on all of humanity. We tend to think far, far better of ourselves than we ought. And so, yes, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as Hitler. Yes, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as that person. And so we, you know, and, and we, can, we can recognize our depravity and still hate the effects. I look at people doing things that I think are going to cause harm in the world, and I grieve, and I pray that God would stop it. But I hope I don't start looking down on them. What are they going to do? They're blind. They're, they're dead. They're held captive to the prince of the power of, of the world. What else did you expect they were going to do? No, you can... Still, there's going to be so much damage. There's going to be so much suffering. There's going to be so much harm because of what they're doing. Certainly, pray about that. Grieve for that. If you can stop it, stop it. But don't sneer and look down your nose at them. You know, um, that's, that's the challenge. Anyway, is that getting at what you're getting at? Or? Okay. It occurs to me that a good example of the Pharisee that would be consistent with what we see all the time would be the Pentecostal that um, follows Benny Hinn or some of the other um, that are Arminian, and they tend to promote the idea that God can't do this unless I'm good. Mm. God can't. Uh, God cannot work in my life unless I do good. So they make a point of being, in their mind, worthy of God's favor. And, and then um, they're really focusing on their own works as opposed to uh, what God has done. I wonder if you might comment on that. No, no, I, I agree. And let me, let me add to that, that there, there is, works are important. The answer to this is not, well, then forget about works. Who cares? Works serve a confirming function. So when you've got somebody who's a profession of faith and they have no works, what it begs the question is, you've trusted Jesus? The God who made the universe lives inside of you and you're still living the same way? Really? But we're questioning the foundation. We're not, we're not, we're not, in other words, we're questioning faith. You're united to Christ? You really? That, that would be the question we would ask potentially for talking to someone who's, who says, yeah, I became a Christian 10 years ago and I have no fruit. Because the gospel I know eventually changes and transforms people. Um, and the solution for such a person would not be bear fruit. The solution would be go back and deal with your foundation. Go back and get on your knees and cry out to God, beat your breast, be merciful to me, the sinner. Um, so fruit confirms. You'll know them by their fruit, Jesus says. So it's not as though we just sort of, I, I think that the, the temptation, I mean, there's always two sides of the 
there's a ditch on either side of the road you can get stuck in, right? So one is this sort of trusting in your own accomplishments, but the other is like, well, then I guess works aren't important. Woo-hee. You know, um, we've already seen Jesus say plenty of things to get rid of that notion, and there's this balance in between. So I look at my, the fruit in my life, and I get encouraged. I don't take confidence in it. I'm not trusting it, but I get encouraged because I see the evidence of God's grace in my life, which speaks to the reality of my faith, that foundation and my union with Christ. So God's growth and God's work in me um, confirms and reaffirms and, and reminds and points to the reality that, you know, 20 years ago, Jeremy Kidder was saved by grace and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And so but, but absolutely, I get encouraged when I see fruit. And if I see a period where I'm bearing thorns, I start to get nervous. <laughs> Not ever because I'm trusting my own right, but what does this say about my relationship with Christ? Because if I'm walking in the light as he is in the light, I'm going to be, have fellowship with him, fellowship with each other, and I'm going to be changed. If I'm not doing that, what does that say about where I'm at, and what does it say about my faith? And that's different than I'm trusting in what I'm doing, and I'm trusting in that I've been good this week. And so even as Christians, we can start to function on a work scale. You know, and um, we, we got this with the... Uh, parable of the good of the uh, prodigal son right you know the older brother syndrome when we want some blessing we earnestly pray for it and that 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 moron over there gets it instead who's not then nearly as faithful as me father I, i i work for you every day you've never thrown a party for me um Oh, okay, then we've started adopting a credit system where God now owes us, and we've forgotten 1710, we are unworthy servants, we've only done our duty. And so you, you never get to advance in credit and debt. It's grace from the top to bottom. It's not like it starts at grace, and then it becomes debt and an and obligation, and now God owes you something. And so it's, it's revealed in us when we think God owes us or when we get resentful that the person who wasn't as good as us got it and we didn't. Um, that, I think, are some other good ways to reveal that we've been shifting into a, okay, God, I've done my bit, now you do your bit type of relationship. Um, other thoughts? Aloe Strander in the back and then Bennett Brown further back. I'm going to pour myself some tea. Brought a pot. You're going to need the tea for this one, probably. Okay. That's what Matt said, anyway. <clears throat> no, it's just, you know, to go to another side of this, as you continue on in, uh, in Matthew 8, or uh, Luke 18, um, you get to the, the rich man and, and, mm. and the eye of the needle, and, you know, his disciples say, well, well, then who can be saved? This is a hard thing. Who can be mm. saved? And the answer is, well, nobody, short of the redemptive work of Christ, and, right. and, you know, it just seems like, for many of us, we've been Christians for so long, but we forget that almost weekly, that mm. it still doesn't, it, it doesn't rely on us or our works, but it's a, as Kevin said, too, it's a tough thing, because, mm. you know, you, when you fail, you, you don't want to approach the throne, you don't, you know, you know I'll wait till I'm you know, wait till I credit myself with some really good things. You know, read the Bible for a couple of days, and then I can come back to the Lord. Mm. And and it just, uh, I think that's all within us. And it's, you know, even that is sin many times. Yeah. No, ab- abs- absolutely. I, one of the illustrations that I, 
I don't know where I got this from, but maybe Lewis, but I, I, I think the challenge for us is oftentimes we view the Christian life like we're knights serving some feudal lord, and so the knight goes off and he slays the dragon, he brings back the head, the knight goes off and he comes back with, you know, he's rescued the damsel and he shows up before the, the way the cat puts the mouse on the doorstep, you, any guys ever had cats that would do that? We do get offerings periodically from our cat in New Hampshire. Um, and you sort of view yourself that way. So if you went off and you messed up and you got defeated, well, I'll wait and I'll go do something and I'll bring it. Look what I did for you, God, and that's your relationship. And that is absolutely not the, new, the, the Christian's relationship with God. We go out and we achieve things on his behalf. I think a much better analogy would be a three- or four-year-old walking through a scary woods with their dad who periodically hears a twig snap and clings to dad's leg and then and jumps back. I think that's the Christian life. Um, and so absolutely, when I'm scared, when I'm wrong, I need, I need my father. You know? And when your kid's been bad and mistreated, what do you need? They need you and they need restoration and I don't shove them away. Now, if they show, it's not my fault, I didn't do anything. Like, yeah, they're gonna get, they're gonna get discipline, right? But when my kid's messed up and there's tears in his eyes, he's never more welcome. <laughs> to come to me than then. Um, and so we're, we're not knights going out slaying dragons for God. We're not, um, that's just not our relationship with him. And when we think we are, then when we fail, we'll just wait, I'll go accomplish something for you, then I'll show up. It, it, we get the whole thing backwards. And we're, we're, we're back to buying and selling. We're back to um, bartering with, with God for his grace. And grace is free, you know? Um, now, I do care that my child has a repentant spirit, right? I mean, I, I, that does matter. And we're not told, come loving your sin. Come, you know, proud as a peacock about what you did. We get a repentant, broken, and contrite tax collector. And Psalm 51 makes that point clear. But where that heart is present, come, come. You know, um, that's, that's the point. It's not go do something. Maybe you should delay coming before God's throne because you need to get your heart in order. That might be the case. And there's times where I'm like, I need to spend some time and read the word because my heart's not repentant yet. It's, it's, I'm still mad about being mistreated. <laughs> and I need to go get unmad. Or, but even then you ask, okay, God, I need help because I want to you know, uh, draw near with a right heart and it's not right. Um, and even that, we're welcome to do. I mean, we're, we're never going to, in one sense, come before God with purely right motives. There's always going to be taints of sin and and. We're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You and I have never done that for three seconds in your life. Um, never fully. I mean, you ever want, anyone want to say there's ever anything you did that was 100% fully through and through done for God's glory? I don't. John Bunyan, uh, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, was quoted as saying, there's enough sin in my best prayer to damn the world. Um or I forget who the other Puritan was, I need to repent of my best repentance. Yeah, everything we do is going to be impure and tainted. And, you know, we, we try and we ask for help and we try to have the right motives, but, you know, we, we it's never, it, thankfully, it's never about the quality of our good works. It's that we're trying, we're trying to obey our Father, we're trying to be sons and daughters, but it never ultimately is about, did you finally get it right? It's about, it's about, whose kids we're trying to be and acting like. Um, Bennett. Are you trying to 
say that you're kind of like judging God? When, when we do what? Well, what I'm hearing right now, um, you're saying like, is he real? I, in that way. I, I think what I'm saying is we, we alter God's character in our mind. Do we view him as a father and we're his weak, pathetic children, but he loves us and he wants to help us? And so if, if we view him that way, I think that when we have sinned, when we've been unfaithful and are contrite, we have confidence. Do you think he still loves uh, the devil? I'm not aware of him anywhere in the Bible saying God loves the devil. So I wouldn't want to speculate. I, I don't know one way or the other. Well, it is in... He was uh, one of the kids in the... Well, he was one of the angels in the Bible before he got to be the devil. Yeah, Satan certainly would be part of the very good creation. Well, so. do you think he, if he changes his mind, if he ever does, do you think Jesus will accept him, or I mean God would accept him back in heaven? So the question is, if an angel, if a fallen angel repented, could they be restored? I don't think so. Um, Hebrews 2 says this. Um, there is no savior for angels. There is no sacrifice for angels. There is no substitute for angels. So if God, from what we understand revealed in Scripture, there would need to be a substitute and a savior for angels. And the author of Hebrews makes this point clearly in, in Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And here's the point, verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. God has provided help for the sons of Abraham. He has not provided help for the angels. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. By the way, that's the only other occurrence of that verb, what the, what the, um, what the tax collector says, be propitious to me, have mercy on me. That's the only other time that verb is used in the New Testament, is right here. So you want to know what he's saying? It's the same verb, to make propitiations for the sins of the people. Do, do that to me, the tax collector's saying. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So the author of Hebrews points out that a savior has come forward conformed to the image of whom he will save, and that is mankind. And no such savior has been sent or brought forward for angels. So could God in the future provide a savior for angels? I, I don't want to speculate. It's, he, it's God. He can do what he wants. Right now, there is no salvation for angels. Can I tell you something? Sure. Um, I'm actually glad that God gave me seizures because if he didn't, 
I'm gonna have that much faith, that much belief, that much hope, and compassion, and all sorts of um, feelings for people who went through abuse and all sorts of stuff. That is a very mature and uh, impressive thing to say. So praise God for that. Praise God for that indeed. Other questions or thoughts? Other end of the room. I wanted to go back a little bit to the Pharisee in this parable who is giving credit to God. I'm wondering, categorizing Pharisees probably is not a wise thing, and I, I wonder about this parable, because if somebody truly views something as a gift from God, it would result in humility. And if this Pharisee doesn't have a humbling result, then does he truly believe what he is experiencing is a gift from God? Oh, I think there's absolutely a measure of self-deception. In fact, if you, if you, the ES, at least my ESV has a footnote that um, it's, it's actually kind of funny. Um, in where is it? There it is. Look at verse um, eleven. Prayed thus, or prayed to himself. You could translate it that way. Oh, I think um, he, it's, there's a two-part package. He is willing intellectually to credit God with who and what he is, but he is very proud of who and what he is. And so for me, intellectually, I absolutely credit whatever gifts, whatever strengths I have. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you did not receive? But to the degree that I don't pray, I'm trusting in my abilities, and I'm... And I'm so, so the issue is not simply, it's not enough to credit God with who and what we are. The, the parable, I think, is zeroing in specifically on trusting in who and what we are, even if we credit that to God. If that's what I'm putting my trust and confidence, you know, I can say, by God's grace, he gave me intelligence, I'm somewhat intelligent, and I'm trusting in that intelligence. Like that's... And you could just easily be as, I studied hard and I'm smart and that's why. But best case scenario, if you're trusting in yourself, even if you credit that with God, you're failing. I, I, that's, I think, what we're getting at. So it's not enough to say everything I have is from God. If I'm trusting in myself and my own righteousness and my own abilities, I'm needing to hear this parable, I think. Does that distinction make sense? I know it's a finer point um, than simply making this about a legalist and, and a non-legalist, but I, I think that finer point is much more ap applicable to the types of struggles I can, I can get. I mean, I get reminded every time that I get convicted about my prayer life and not being where it should be, it's a pure and simple evidence in my confidence and my abilities. Because like Kevin said, I only pray when I think I need help. So how often do I think I got this covered? I can handle this. I can deal with this. You're absolutely right, Kevin. God, what most of the time brings us to prayer is when we're encountering things we are out of control of, we need help with. 
So to the degree that I don't pray, what does that say about my self-confidence in myself and my abilities? You know, and then God dishes out something that makes you clear. <laughs> you're, you're a vapor, man, you know? You're, you're, you're a little spray from an aerosol can. And yeah, okay, I need, I need help. But I always need help. I just only am reminded of it in certain circumstances. Um, anybody else? That's a chatty crowd this morning. Let me, uh, let me make one other point in um, 18 from the rich young ruler, I think backing this up as well. So the rich young ruler in Luke 18 comes to Jesus. We'll get here in two weeks, God willing. And again, we've got a guy who's trusting in himself that he's righteous. However, he's a little concerned that he might not be fully righteous. A ruler asked him, good teacher, verse 18, what must I do to return inherit eternal life. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That's the first challenge. Okay, let's define our terms. What are we talking about when we say good? You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Notice the similarity from the Pharisee's prayer of that list. That's not accidental. Um, Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He said, all these I've kept from my youth. Now Jesus could say, quite rightly, bosh. It's nonsense. You're a liar. You just, you just lied. <laughs> you just bore false witness right there, buddy. But the point Jesus wants to make, I think, is that that entire measurement scale needs to go. So Jesus doesn't challenge it. He lets it stand. It's not that Jesus agrees with him. I think what Jesus is saying, okay, let's, let's accept that for the moment. One thing you lack. But then Jesus tells him to do three things. One thing you still lack, sell all that you have. Distribute to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So does he lack one thing or three things? And how does that answer make sense? I think it's not as though Jesus is saying, you've not borne false witness sufficiently, you've not committed adultery sufficiently, you've, you've kept these commandments sufficiently, the only one commandment you're a little short on is being charitable, so go sell what you have, you'll make up that last little bit, and then now you're righteous, and now you can come be my disciple. That's not what Jesus is doing at all. What Jesus is saying, okay, three things. You lack one thing. The thing you let go of, the thing you let go of your money, that's not the thing you lack, right? Because Jesus tells him to sell it, cast it from you, get it away from you. So what he lacks isn't money. I think the picture is, what is stopping you from following me is that you've already got your hand gripping money. So why don't you let it go? It'll fall on the poor, and now you can take hold of me and come follow me. What he lacks is following Jesus. It's not a measurement of commandments. You lack following me. And the thing that's stopping you from following me is this money that you're holding on to. So let it go, and when you let it go, by implication, you're gonna give it to the poor and come follow me. So we're not talking about which commandments do I need to keep. So there's a sense in which, sure, if you could sinlessly, perfectly keep all of God's commandments, you'd be righteous. And that's Jesus' first answer. But what you really lack, he's saying, I think, is me, is following me. So it's, it's another, I think, example, and I, we get even in between this, the children coming to me, of our weakness and helplessness and, and 
poverty in coming to salvation. This guy, again, is trying to come saying, I, th- I think I'm most of the way there. I think I'm mostly righteous. And we don't know whether he thinks he did that himself or it's the gift of God. All we know is he thinks he's just about there. I, I have kept these ones. What else do I need to do? And Jesus throws out the whole measuring scale. You come follow me. I, I think that's the one thing he's lacking is following Jesus. And Jesus identifies the thing that's going to stop him from doing that because Jesus has already taught us his ethic on lending and giving to those who ask and, and not loving money and using your money to, to, to using unrighteous mammon to prepare for yourself an entrance into heaven. And clearly, those are the types of things this guy isn't going to want to do. So why don't you just uh, get, deal with it all at once, get rid of your money, come follow me. That's what you lack. Um, and this guy's whole system of, okay, am I righteous enough yet? Have I done it? Gets, gets thrown out the window. Does that make, I mean, might make two weeks now a bit more boring, but I think that's where it's going at. I mean, I got, I got two more weeks to make, I can change my mind, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, I got, I think that's where it's getting at, so, yeah, yeah. Um, we got five minutes. Anybody? Bueller. Bob. As I look at uh, the parable of the tax collector, mm. it seems fairly apparent, and you may have actually said this, um, but it's fairly apparent that he is measuring himself against people. You mean the Pharisee? Yeah, the Pharisee. Yeah, yes, yes, oh, yes. yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Pharisee, he's measuring himself against people. Yeah, yeah. And also, of course, is what the rich young ruler is doing. He's measuring himself against people, and both of these Examples are the second table, second tablet of the law. Yeah. None of them relate to what's your relationship with God, right. with the exception that the one who is measuring himself against God is the tax collector who does recognize his bankruptcy. Yeah. Ab- absolutely. Ab- no, good observation. Excellent observation. Yeah, we, uh, it's easier to give ourselves passing grades on the horizontal commandments. Now, Jesus makes it clear, actually, if you look on someone with lust, you're guilty of adultery. You're like, oh, snap. You know, but it's easier to do the horizontal ones. Having no other gods, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, good luck with that. I mean, it's, we can strive, we can long. We're, you know, we're not, we're not going to be doing that. Um, and so it's not for nothing that the Pharisees focused on the ones that could be measured, could be seen, um, you could sound a gong for, you know. Um, it's got to be just amusing, ridiculous watching. I mean, they literally, Jesus rebukes them in another gospel. They would sound a gong to draw everyone's attention. Oh, now I've got your attention. I'm going to give some alms to this poor man. You know, go back about your business. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Um, but we, what would be a modern-day equivalent? We do the humble brag on Facebook. At blessed. Just got honored by this new thing, At blessed. Now everyone knows, you know, that that might be the modern day equivalent of of the gong. I don't know. That's just my opinion. Um, okay. Anything else? Oh, Wanda, bring us home. Well, I just wanted to say, as a former teacher, sometimes you judge your performance by your students. And when I first saw the small amount of scripture you were going to do, I thought, what? That's pretty obvious. And I thought, nah, Pastor Jeremy, he's going to unpack that. And I think you blew it out of the park. So the fact that we're all not real 
Okay. Talkative doesn't mean a darn thing. I thought it was, you really shed some new light and light I needed to hear today. So I thank you. Well, praise God. And if, and if any of you want to uh, hear the message that John Piper gave, I was listening to this week, if you, if you go to iTunes podcast and just search for, did Jesus preach Paul's gospel? That, and what Piper's trying to get at is um, some charges by liberals who want to pit Paul and Romans and Galatians against Jesus. And they want to say, Jesus is just talking about loving your neighbor, turning the other cheek, um, being kind to people, helping the poor. And in Jesus' ethic, hey, if you do that and you're following him doing that, you're good. And then Paul comes along and corrupts the method, message with this law court analogy and a t- substitutionary atonement and justification and all this justification language. And to be honest, this is the first time in Luke's gospel Jesus has said justified. Up to this point, it's, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. And so he zeroes in on this parable because it is probably the most Pauline in its terms and categories. You've got propitiation. I need propitiation. You've got Jesus saying this one was justified. And he argues quite strongly, no, Paul's teaching and Jesus' teaching are perfectly in harmony. So that's, that's where he's coming from with it. But um, it was, he, he pointed out that if we let the grammar direct you, this was for those who are trusting in themselves, and we let the grammar, he said, I thank you, and we want to import because of what we know about Pharisees, yeah, sure, you're thanking God, whatever. If you read it the way it's written, it actually makes a much more fine and precise, and I think for, my, for me, cutting point, than if you just leave it broadly as, oh, those stupid legalists. <laughs> you know, it's, it's much more like, oh, ouch, for me at least. So I, if you want to check that out, it's um, just Google or did Jesus preach Paul's gospel? Um, it's an interesting and provocative title. And with that, is there anything else? I'll let you guys go. Okay, let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, help us now to be faithful. Um, help us not to trust in our own works and our own righteousness, but help us to trust in the work you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.